0: Hello. Barnes & Noble Hi. is so excited to welcome TJ Klune to our Poured Over podcast. TJ, Hooray. thank you so much for being here. Yes, thank
1: you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
0: I am really, really excited to chat with you today. <laughs> I love your books. I'm just thrilled to see you and listen and chat with you. And thank you so much. No problem. I have to start off with a huge congratulations because (laughs) Under the Whispering Door is the Barnes & Noble Speculative Fiction Pick Book of the Year.
1: Yeah, I know. I just found that out today, <laughs> this morning, the the day that we're recording this, and that is huge, huge news. And that is, I'm absolutely humbled and grateful that my little novel about death has been chosen for that honor. So I really appreciate that. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's really exciting. It was the overwhelming pick from the booksellers. Everybody loved the ah! book, and <laughs> they've been getting behind it. So it's a really cool thing to know that they're the ones. Who chose it and are loving it and selling it.
1: It is. And it, I love bookstores with all of my heart for everything that they've done for me and my, my stories, but it is the booksellers that are at the front putting these books into the hands of readers. So they do absolutely deserve the majority, if not all of the credit.
0: Yes, that is very true. I was introduced to you first through The House in the Cerulean Sea, which I read in October of last year, kind of during the height of the pandemic. And it felt like a giant Hug, which is exactly what I needed. I was up in the Catskills with some friends just getting away. And you know, it was it was a wonderful book to read right then. And Under the Whispering Door feels very similar in that sense. Is it your intention to write such comforting books?
1: Not necessarily. So look, uh, House in the Surillion Sea was 2017, 2018. Under the Whispering Door 2018, 2019. So they were written pre-pandemic, you know, obviously I had no idea of what the future would hold. And then for a couple of years, at least I'd been building up to the release of The House in the Cerulean Sea when that came out, supposed to be in March of 2020. And the Thursday before the release, like the book was going to come out uh, on a Tuesday, the Thursday before the release, the Thursday before I was about to start my first ever national tour and everything. I get a call from my publisher who says, have you heard of this thing called COVID? And sorry, but we're kind of canceling everything because we have no idea what's going on. And then my book came out that week, but that same week is when COVID exploded all over the country. And so I'm sitting here you know, while everybody's wondering what is going on, if this is serious, if it's not serious, why are we buying toilet paper at the rate that we are? And I'm sitting here going, hey, do you want to read a a book about the Antichrist? (laughs) But it's funny. I was a little worried that my book was going to get lost in all the necessary bluster and noise of pandemic hitting the United States and the world over. But a funny thing happened. continued trucking on and on and building a, a, a bigger readership as the year went on. And I heard over and over and over again that it was the hug that people needed. Under the Whispering Door is not that hug. Under the Whispering Door, and it's it's really weird. So the House in the Australian Sea came out at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody needed a bit of escapism, when everybody needed that hug. Under the Whispering Door it came out in September of 2021, and we're still in the middle of this pandemic. And it's no longer not necessarily scary to a certain extent, but it is aggravating, it's exhausting, and it's more than a little ridiculous. And I don't know that we've necessarily had the time or the wherewithal to grieve what we've lost since the pandemic started. Not just people, but time, our our sense of normalcy and everything. And I wonder when that's going to hit. So it feels a little strange that at the beginning of the pandemic, I gave readers, the hug in the form of a book. And now we have Under the Whispering Door, which I said before is not a hug, but I think it's more of a shoulder to lean on, a shoulder that's there to tell you that it's okay not to be okay when you need to hear it. Because I think we do need to realize that it's okay not to be okay. And I know that that's what I've been taught since March of 2020, with this pandemic, so while the books certainly carry some of the same themes, they're not meant to mirror each other. I'd th- I like to think of them more as two sides of the same coin.
0: Yeah, I like that. I do think that you're right, and the timing was very fitting for both of them to come out when they did.
1: Yeah, though I wish the world was in any different <laughs> place than it currently <laughs> is now. I think yeah. that these two books are are hopefully what some people can can use not only for an escape, but to start considering what it means going forward for us in our communities, us as a whole. And I may not have all the answers, but I can at least hopefully point you in the right direction.
0: I love that. So both House in the Cerulean Sea and Under the Whispering Door, and Extraordinaries for that matter, all create really safe spaces for characters to fully be themselves, as well as the space for them to reflect and grow as well. Um, The main characters of those books go through such a major transformation from the beginning to the end. Can you just talk about that and, and how that works?
1: Yeah. So in particular with Under the Whispering Door, you have the main character of Wallace Price, who from the very first page... Is a bit of a jerk. He is not love him so much. I know, right? (laughs) Me too. But But he's. he's If I may
0: say, he's a lovable jerk. Kind of, you can kind of see something under him, though.
1: You can, and because there, look, there's a tricky line to walk in writing an eminently unlikable character. Because one, if they're too unlikable and it goes on for too long, you're never really giving the reader somebody to root for. Or if the character's unlikable, but they're redeemed too early. It feels like that that redemption is unearned. So it can be a tricky line to walk, but I love, love writing characters who are, well, let's be honest, they're 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 assholes. <laughs> He's a jerk. Yeah. Wallace yeah. is a jerk from page one. The whole point of this book is that Wallace dies at the very beginning. That's not a spoiler. He, he dies in the very first chapter of the book. The whole point of him is to see his growth, to see everything that he knows and loves or thinks he loves, and it's not necessarily people that he loves, it's more of the fact that he loves his power, his business, his his sense of self, when all of that is stripped away, that's all taken away from him. And he has nothing left, but memories of life, that he thought was going well, but in hindsight, which, you know, is a bitch of a thing, because no matter what you do, there's always going to be hindsight. And he sees that his life was not a life well lived at all. And I love characters like him, because you know that there is going to hopefully be some kind of redemption process for him, but you get to see what that looks like. You get to see him doing the work into trying to become a better person. Will he always succeed? No, he makes mistakes and he has setbacks, but He was heavily inspired by Dickens' Ebenezer Scrooge. And the one thing, I love A Christmas Carol, but the one thing that, that, you know, not to disparage Dickens by any stretch of the imagination, but one thing that you never saw in A Christmas Carol was Scrooge putting in the work to become a better person. At the very end, a switch is flipped and he all of a sudden sees the error of his ways and everything is wonderful. I wanted to see if a person like Scrooge died and did not have the power to do anything to fix the life he led, what would that person do then? What would their journey look like? So writing a character like Wallace is a pleasure because I know there is goodness in him. I know Mm -hmm. that I can bring him about to make him a better person and hopefully bring along the reader on that ride and give them somebody to root for while at first giving them somebody to despise.
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting thought because... I think it's also, as humans, one of our greatest fears that when we die, we're going to be like, oh crap, I didn't mm-hmm. live the life I wanted. So it's so interesting to read that arc. And it, so it makes you reflect a little bit to think, am I doing the stuff that I want to do? And if I'm not, how can I change it? So it's very inspiring, but a little fear. <laughs> There's a little fear right. there when you read the book. There is
1: fear. And and frankly, I didn't set out to answer what comes next, because sure. I don't know. This, sure. this book is more of a way station, as it says, to give people a sense of time to recoup and recover and get used to their new normal. But trying to figure out what happens next, anything I could have written would have just been met with skepticism and is rightly so, because no one living knows what happens next. So I poke and prod at the issue a little bit and I give hints, but setting out to answer definitively <laughs> what lays beyond the eponymous door, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm capable of something like that. I don't know mm-hmm. if anybody is.
0: Yeah, it was a very um, creative look at it, though, and a very oh, thoughtful way to look at it. Your main characters in in those two books are queer. And what I love about these books is that there's no quote unquote coming out story. You write about mm-hmm. them the way a heterosexual couple gets written about. Um, how important is that to you? It's
1: very important. And the reason being, look, there are much greater authors than I who have written coming out stories. And there is absolutely a time and place for coming out stories, both in young adult fiction and adult fiction, because let's face it, the coming out process does not stop when you come out the first time, because as you go through life, anybody you meet is potentially somebody that you have to come out to. So it's a lifelong process that happens over and over and over again. And there is an organic nature to coming out process because it is a a well-loved trope in fiction of coming out and finding horror, but life doesn't stop there. And I've always been fascinated with the idea of having a set of characters who are A, already out, and B, sexuality isn't necessarily the definition of the story or even a defining part of the story. They just Are queer. That's just who they are. We're not going to have a big coming out scene. We're not going to have people decrying them because they're coming out. And this is probably why it can necessarily fall in the fantasy category because there's no homophobia in these books that I'm writing because let's face it, these types of books already deal with certain types of issues that I don't need to add that onto. A, homophobia is boring. Let's Mm -hmm. let's be honest, homophobia Mm -hmm. is boring and passe and ridiculous. But B, there are so many other things that people face in the world. We aren't defined by our sexuality. It is part of us, but it doesn't necessarily define us, or at least it doesn't necessarily define these characters. And Linus in the house in the Cerulean Sea and Wallace in Under the Whispering Door, they're queer. Wallace is bisexual. Linus is gay. And they both explicitly say so on the page. It's not something I want to wink coyly at. If I'm going to have that kind of representation, I'm going to have it listed on the page, but it's not the be all and end all. The romantic relationships that they have in their respective stories is a part of the book, but it's a part of a whole. It's not the focus. And I love stories like that because you get to see all parts of their lives. You don't just get to see their, their queer selves. You just don't get to see the romantic side. You get to see all parts of them because it is just a part of a whole.
0: I love that. And when I was reading it, I almost didn't even notice it in a good way. You know, it's just like, yeah. oh, they're together. That's, of that's, course, that's, that's that makes sense. To be. That's you see that whole journey. Yeah. Right,
1: you know, I had <laughs> I had an 80-year-old woman write to me after reading The House in the Cerulean Sea. And she, she said that she read the book she was a, a woman of faith and she was not very happy with me about my inclusion of the antichrist, but that she, and I quote, did not mind the homosexuals, which, you know, <laughs> I count, <laughs> I count that as a win. I that count is, that as a win. That if is progress. A woman <laughs> who probably, bless her heart, never had a day in her life, read a book about queer people. All of a sudden she picks up this <laughs> precocious looking fantasy book with a pretty cover and then all of a sudden she's reading about the antichrist and gay <laughs> characters i probably blew her wig off man <laughs> i'm totally okay with that totally. because she did not mind the homosexuals right and if that is if that is being damned with fate praise you know what i will take it because maybe now she'll open her eyes just a little bit further or maybe now she'll stop before she says something too her grandkids, that could be considered right. offensive. Maybe, right. maybe, maybe.
0: And hopefully pass the book along too to someone exactly, else who may.
1: Exactly. Saying, hey, way. I may, I had this viewpoint. It was not the way it should have been here. This is what helped me discover a different viewpoint. Just ignore the Antichrist part of it. In my head, she shared it with her entire church group.
0: So, <laughs> yeah, her Bible study. Right. <laughs> we talked about your books having queer representation, but did you have books that you read when you were younger that had that? And is that part of why you're writing this now?
1: I didn't really look, let's, let's be honest. It was only six years ago that queer people got the right to marry in the United States with Obergefell in 2015, you know, and I remember at the time seeing people post on Twitter, yay, now homophobia is over. Gays can do everything (laughs) straight people can. And if only that's how it worked. But when I was coming of age, when I was in my teen years in, in the nineties, we if there were queer people in any form of media, whether it be TV, movies, books, video games, whatever, they were either A, the offensive, over-the-top parody of a queer person and the designated best friend, yeah, or they were beaten or harmed or got sick and died all to teach their straight characters a very valuable lesson. So I didn't really get to see myself in in books growing up. The very first time I did read about other queer people in a book was Patricia Nell Warren's The Front Runner. And if you know that book, you know that book is not a romance. It's a love story. And the difference being in terms of fiction terms is a love story can end any way it's supposed to. A romance is typically one that has a happily ever after or happily for now ending. I didn't know that. Of course, you know, I'm a 16 year old queer kid in rural Oregon. So what the hell do I know? Patricia L. Warren wrote a book in the 70s about a hope, Olympic hopeful in track and field and his coach who they fall for each other and it ends horribly. It ends mm-hmm. tragically. It is the definition of a barrier gaze. But again, this book was groundbreaking because it was written by a woman in the 70s and was very unflinching about how it portrayed the queer characters. There was on-page sex, there was on-page language, there was discussions about sex and sexuality. And it, for the time, it was a big deal, and I was actually able to get to know Miss Nell Warren before she passed uh, a few years ago. And she read a couple of my books, and she was a delightful woman. She was wonderful. She's extraordinarily talented. But my first experience with queers in books was watching them die, oh. and that was transformative for every anyone that's listening who's straight. You've never had to think about are these characters like me? Because they always have been. And yes, we have young adult being at the forefront of diversity. And yes, we're seeing more and more marginalized voices being invited to have a seat at the table, which is very important, especially in science fiction and fantasy genres, which is for a very long time in a straight white male game. But it's still, we need even more. (laughs) We need to show that our stories matter, our voices are important, and that marginalized voices get to and should have the same sort of deals, both monetarily and marketing-wise, that their counterparts get. I mean, hell, the Under the Whispering Door debuted at number four on the New York Times bestseller list when it came out, which is awesome. But it got me starting to think, how often do we get to see queer fantasy books? on the New York Times bestseller list. Right. And I'm a cis white dude. Where, where are my trans authors having their books on New York Times bestseller list? There are so many wonderful authors out there who deserve it more than I do. And I think it's important that we continue to recognize, even as we understand that we have so much further that we have to go in order to be able to prove that we are as diverse as we like to think that we are.
0: I totally agree, and I think it's that's what makes it even more thrilling that your book is our the speculative book of the year because it's exactly what you said where it's it's just a book for all intents and purposes, and it has this you know a queer relationship in it, but it's such a great representation of just a wonderful story.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, th- thank you, thank you for saying that, and not to toot my own horn, but Barnes and Noble has been wonderful. They named it as one of their top. 10 books of the year. They named it as one of their top science fiction fantasy books of the year. And now they're naming it the top speculative fiction book pick of the year, which is, I love you, Barnes and Nobles. (laughs) It's wonderful. But it is, it's important that we get to see that. And you know, what's great is I did check the Barnes and Noble lists that Under the Whispering Door is listed on. For example, the science fiction best picks of the year. In addition to Under the Whispering Door, it has Rika Aoki's a Light from Uncommon Stars, which Rika is a dynamic author who's trans and her book is full of trans and queer characters. And Freya Mars, A Marvelous Light, is a queer book that is delightful and sexy. And that comes out next month, but it just shows. That our stories are important. That that if you actually look, there are queer stories out there for everyone, for every type of reader that there is. But it's really great to see that that kind of recognition is being extended to other authors in this genre as well.
0: I agree. What books are you reading now, queer authors or otherwise? What is inspiring? So I just
1: I just said Rika Aoki, her book A Light from Uncommon Stars. I got to read it last year, an early version of it, and I have never read anything quite like it before. It, I was, my blurb somehow ended up on the front cover of that. It, it's true. I love that book. And I hope that everybody who reads it has the same wonderful experience that I got to have with it. Freya Marsk, A Marvelous Light, a book about queer magicians. And it is delightful and it is funny. And I am very jealous of the magic system that Miss Marsk created in that book as it's one of the most unique that I've ever read. I to have an early copy of V.E. Schwab's Gallant. I get to read this one. This comes out next year and it is so far so good. And one other book I do want to touch on that comes out next year. I believe it comes out in March and it is by author Anne-Marie McLemore who uses they, them pronouns. So that's what I'm going to use. They wrote a book called Lake Lore that they asked if I would read early and I did. And it is a book about two trans boys, one with ADHD like I have. And the other one with dyslexia, I rarely get jealous of other authors when they write stories, but I was seething with jealousy over <laughs> this book. But there's nobody else other than Anne-Marie McLemore could have written this book. And it is it is a short novel, but uh, I am in love with every single word that is written on this page, it, it, on the pages. It is it is a marvel. And I, I am so excited for everybody to read that book. And that comes out next year. It is called Link Lore.
0: Do you have an all-time favorite book? Ooh, I know that's a tough.
1: tough one. That a is tough. tough. <laughs> Probably my favorite book of all time is, I'm a very big horror and thriller reader. That's typically what I read, though I do try to try to read as much as I possibly can and everything I can. I'll give you two. My favorite nonfiction book is Lost City of Z by David Graham. Mm -hmm. And it is a book about a doomed journey into the Amazon to find a lost city by a commander named Percy Fawcett back in the early 1900s, who disappeared and never was seen from or heard from again. And the reporter that sets out to answer the mystery of what happened to him. I love, love that book. Best fiction book, I could go with the easy route and say something by Stephen King because I've read everything that man has ever written and I will continue to do so. And I can only hope to be as prolific as he by the time I am in my seventies like he is, but it goes to Robert McCammon's Boy's Life is my favorite book of all time. I've read it at least a dozen times. And each time I read it, I get something new out of it. I've never had a book that instantly transported me from the very first page before like that. And I will continue to read it as much as I can, because it is just wonderful.
0: That's wonderful. I love books that do that, that you get more every time you read it. Mm -hmm. That's the best. I get
1: from people who say, no, I'll never reread books. I'm like, what? (laughs) I know there's a lot of books out there to read. But when I find something I adore and love, I'll reread that crap out of it.
0: I agree. And then, yeah, you find something different. You've like, Mm -hmm. and I think it's also when you're in a different place in your life, you just are naturally going to get something different from the book. So, you know, I read a book 10 years ago, 10 years younger, totally different place. I read it now and I'm like, wow, I love it for this reason that I never would have picked up on before.
1: Because I read a boy's life first when I was 16. And I can get stuff from it now that just would, I did not have the life experience as a 16 year old to understand certain things in the story, especially when it was dealing with when it covers topics in this book, such as the Ku Klux Klan and the racism of the sixties. I didn't have context for that. I was a white kid from Oregon. What the hell did I know? But as I've gotten older and witnessed and, and heard about stuff like that, I've been able to see it from a different perspective. And that's how I think all reading should be. Something that you read as a 16-year-old, if you read again as a 39-year-old, should affect you differently because you can see it from those different perspectives.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I have a little bit of a personal question, so please forgive me yeah. if you don't want to answer it. But um, the dedication page in Under the Whispering Door is, mm-hmm. I assume, a person close to that you lost and perhaps inspired this book. And yeah. Um, I know personally, one can never heal from grief, but did this book help you move through it, help you kind of make sense of it a little bit?
1: So back in its earliest iteration, Under the Whispering Door, before a word was ever written, was going to be about the bureaucracy of the afterlife. Because I was inspired by the scene in one of my favorite movies, Beetlejuice, Mm -hmm. where uh, Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin... After they die, they go in, into a version of the afterlife that's like a, a stopping point, which is basically this bureaucratic nightmare where they have to meet with a social worker who goes through their files. And that scene, it's its only like five, 10 minutes, but it is just... The imagination in that one scene alone just always stuck with me. And I, I wondered about it, like the bureaucracy of the afterlife and how that would be. And so I had these tentative plans to start doing something with it. But as sometimes happens, somebody got to it first and did it much better than I ever could, which was NBC's The Good Place with Kirsten Bell, which is a wonderful show that did yes. it better than I could have ever thought to do it. So I kind of shelved that idea. So yes, the book is dedicated to Eric. His name is Eric Arvin. He was a wonderful, wonderful author and who happened to write a a book about the afterlife itself called Woke Up in a Strange Place. And I urge everyone to read it because Eric's prose is sublime. And he was one of the most wonderful authors that I've ever had the pleasure to read. And one of the most wonderful people that I've ever had the pleasure to know, he and I found each other at a strange time, and fell in love with each other. And one day, He shortly, uh, it was six weeks after I proposed to him, he collapsed in our home and was taken to the hospital. And it turned out needed brain surgery, which did not go well. Suffice to say, he was a quadriplegic after that surgery and passed away a little while after. I was in a very toxic place. I was in a very dark place. i I hated everyone. I hated everything. We had all this wonderful community of readers building up around us. But as it happens, as month one turned into month five in hospitals, they had their own lives to go back to. And that made me so angry that these people who were so supportive had lives that weren't like mine, that were crumbling and being torn down. And I was I was so angry at everyone and everything. And there is a character in Under the Whispering Door whose name is Cameron. And if you've read this book, I'm not going to spoil him, but if you've read this book, just know that I could have been Cameron very, very quickly, very, very easily. And it came to a point where I almost was Cameron, but I did not go the route that Cameron makes the difficult decision to go through. And instead I did what, what anyone can do in that situation. I learned that grief is not something that'll ever go away. It calcifies or it petrifies and it hardens and it basically leaves this lump where an empty space had been, but every now and then it'll crack and you'll always feel it. So it may not be as painful as it once was, and it may not be as prevalent as it once was, but grief, even though no two people experience it the same way, is something that never truly goes away. Under the whispering door, what it turned into was me trying to process my grief and what it means. Again, I don't have all the answers. I don't know what comes next. I don't know if there's nothing. I don't know if there's everything. I don't know if it's heaven and hell. I don't know if there's a limbo. I don't know. And the not knowing is something that I have often found frustration with, but then there's also a catharsis to it because maybe we're not meant to know until it's our time to. So I wrote under the whispering door as the last great part of my grief, to understand what I was feeling, to understand what others might be feeling. Because grief is such a tricky thing to talk about. It's almost taboo like sex and money, because we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about things that make us sad or make us uncomfortable. But grief only has as much power as we give it. And I think that the more we talk about it, it's kind of like how I view the talks on mental health. The more we talk about it, the less mysterious and powerful it will be. That doesn't mean we can cure it because grief, if you live long enough to learn what love is, you will know what grief is at some point in your life. So this book was my wish into the universe, what, what happens for all of us. You know, Maybe one day when it's my time to fix, to see what happens next, I'll close my eyes and I'll be taken to a tea shop with people who work there who are empathetic and kind and so filled with hope that I'll have no choice but to see what they see and to believe what they believe. And if that happens, then that's great. I'll have gotten my wish and what I hope for everyone else. If that's not what happens, that's okay too. Because if there is something that comes next, then we will be able to find the people that we lost. And I hope that that wherever they are, that I have made them proud of what I'm doing now. And so it is finally my time to see them again. I won't be Wallace. I'll be able to say I did what I needed to do. And maybe I wasn't perfect. Maybe I was far from perfect, but I try to be a better person each and every single day. Did I always succeed? No, but I tried.
0: Well, I'm very sorry about Eric, but you have made a beautiful, beautiful tribute. And I think this is a beautiful way to talk about death and to talk mm-hmm. about grief. And I think it's so interesting with grief because it's also something that I think you don't understand until you go through it.
1: Right. And and again, not even everybody will experience it the same way. Right. And I need, I need people to understand too, is that there is big deaths and there are little deaths. There is right. big grief and there are little grief. You right. can have grief if you say didn't get the promotion that you, mm-hmm. you were hoping you were going to get, or you can have grief when you and your spouse or partner or significant other get into a fight and it, it can turn maybe a little mean. You can have the grief is not defined by the loss of a person. It could be the loss of a feeling. It could be the lo- hell loss of a pet. I know that when my good boy eventually goes, his name is Hendricks, that it is going to feel like I lost my best friend and nothing is forever, but we are all unified by happiness because we know how that feels. And we are all unified by grief because we know how that feels, even if it doesn't feel the exact same way as the next person.
0: I definitely agree. Kind of switching, <laughs> switching <laughs> emotions a little bit. I'm just so, I'm just so touched by what you just said. And and I just... I mean, I've lost somebody close to me too. And I think that had I been a, a writer in the way that you are, I, I would have loved to have had some sort of output like that. So I, I just said it, but I just think it's such a beautiful tribute and, and what a wonderful way to look at the world of the afterlife and just say, hey, this is a tea shop and this is what it is. And there are kind people who are going to help me through that. And and we could all be so lucky that that is what is waiting for us.
1: Right. And you know the the idea of, of this being in a tea shop was pretty simple because- death has always been around. Death has always been a part of life. And tea is one of the oldest drinks in the world. As of right now, tea is the second most consumed drink in the world after water. Um, Third is beer. So just, you know, (laughs) do with what you will about that. But almost in every single culture, there is something about tea that it's part of our lives. America is a very coffee culture that we have here, but tea is usually the drink of choice everywhere else. And I'm fascinated by how almost every culture in the world has tea or some ritual or rite when it comes to tea, different kind of tea, what it means to this group of people, what it means to this individual. And so it's just so weird that that we have this idea of death being universal crossing cultural lines, but there's something about tea that has seemed to do that as well. So putting those two those two things together seemed like the right thing to do. It felt like they fit.
0: I love it. They do. So you create such a vivid worlds within these books where they take place—the tea shop and the cerulean sea and, and all of those places. I could visualize everything, and mm-hmm. it's all so whimsical and, and colorful. And I loved all of it, and I want to visit all of them. Within that, one of my favorite parts in *House of the Cerulean Sea* was you created a playlist within the book. I don't know if you did that consciously, but I I noticed it. Uh, I took that from it anyway. And um, mm-hmm. there's one part maybe two thirds of the way through the book where Linus and Arthur are dancing to smile by Nat King Cole. And I actually when I was reading, I had to stop and put the book down and listen to that song because the world Mm -hmm. was so vivid. I kept trying to read and I was like, I'm so distracted by this song. And I just need I can imagine them and I need to be in this moment with them, even though it's a very intimate moment between them. But I just need to feel like I'm in the room witnessing this with everybody. And how lovely is this? So how do you make these worlds?
1: These books are the House in the Australian Sea and Out of the Whispering Door. Are obviously, fantasies. But let's start with the the House in the Australian Sea. There is a timeless feel about it because I mm-hmm. don't give a specific year as to when the right. book takes place. I don't necessarily mention current events in any way, shape, or form. And there's no if you if you recall in the book, there's no mention of televisions at any point. There's no mention right. of cell phones, but there are computers and record players and record stores and you know, it's very tiny, whiny. you know, going a little bit all mm-hmm. over the place when it comes to that. But that, that's intentional. And there's something timeless about Nat King Cole. And there's something timeless about the big brassy sound of somewhere uh, beyond the sea. Mm-hmm. And I love that music <laughs> more than I could say. I, I listen to that type of music constantly. And so to have it built into this world seemed to fit perfectly because it's a connection to our world, but it's not necessarily a big one. It is like seeing a different world that resembles our own, but it's like through a fractured mirror. And I just like the idea of these, as Lucy calls it in the book, Dead People Music. I just love <laughs> the idea because, you know, when you're listening to Bobby Farron and you're listening to the Big Bopper and Buddy Holly and Richie Valens, there's a very haunting quality about it because yeah. you know all of these people are dead. And There is certain times that their music, as he says, it sounds like ghosts. And I just love, love, love that dead people music. Under the whispering door, I think that the setting, particularly in this one, is the the main character that is not actually alive is the tea shop Mm -hmm. So it needs to feel lived in. So it doesn't necessarily have a playlist per se of songs that are mentioned in the book, but it has a sense of place. It has a sense of coziness. Like you can hear the floors creaking. You can see the plants hanging from the ceiling, the counter, the display case with all the confectioners in it. And it's important that you have that because if a place, especially in under the whispering door, or even going to the house in the Cerulean Sea, in the house in the Cerulean Sea the majority of that book takes place on an island in an orphanage. And if that didn't feel like a real place, then it's going to feel, you know, too small for the reader, even more so in Under the Whispering Door, where 95% of the book takes place in one tea shop. So if that tea shop doesn't feel like a character unto itself, if it doesn't have a sense of realness about it, it's going to become claustrophobic to the reader. It'll become stifling. So I keep that in mind, especially when I know I'm going to be writing about one particular place that I wanted to feel as real as possible, but also just off enough to capture the imagination and minds of the reader. Because I love that blurring of the lines a little bit to say, hey, that could be like this world, but there's also something not quite the same about it.
0: Out of that dead people music, (laughs) is there someone that you would love to go see in concert if you could? Like, who's the person out of those that, who's your all time that you'd love to see in concert if you could? Buddy Holly. Oh man, what
1: I would have given to see Buddy Holly play at at any point because that dude could rock. You know, it's the whole basis of of the day the music died where Buddy Holly, Richie Valens and all these people got onto a plane and that they weren't necessarily supposed to be on and died. And I can't imagine, you know, being in the music industry during that time and having your biggest stars all of a sudden, it just showed how mortal life is and how quickly it c- it could end. But Buddy Holly, man, what I would have given to see him rock out.
0: <laughs> That's a great answer. There's one character that I think about after reading Under the Whispering Door, and it's it's Nancy, the mm-hmm. one who's there. Can you talk a little bit more about her? She, I think she's just a, a wonderful character that, I think I very much feel connected to throughout the book of just mm-hmm. like, you can feel something right there, but you're a little lost, but you want it so badly. Can you Yeah. Her
1: so bit? in Under the Whispering Door, we have different versions of death that come through the tea shop stores. We talked about Cameron earlier. We talked about Wallace. Everybody in this book has a relation to death in some way or another. Nancy's is perhaps the most tragic. Nancy is alive. And she comes to this tea shop for a very specific reason. She's looking for someone that she's lost. It's actually kind of funny. I I included her character because of a different book I I wrote. Back in 2015, I wrote a book. It's more of a a novella called Olive Juice. Part of it covers um, something known as missing white woman syndrome, where it shows that well-to-do white women who go missing take over the news media cycle, as opposed to women of color or indigenous women who go missing at at a much higher rate who don't get the same coverage. And doing research for that book, I spoke to a woman of color whose daughter had gone missing uh, years before. Her her case had been solved. Unfortunately, it led to her daughter had passed and the person responsible was arrested and the woman's daughter was returned to her. And she told me that uh, at the time when I was doing my research and doing my interview, she told me that. While she was so happy and relieved to have her daughter home, she was so upset that she never got to say goodbye. That it was the day, unlike any other day, that changed everything forever and it felt normal. She remembers the last thing she said to her daughter. And this had happened years and years before. This was in the 90s, but she remembered the last thing she ever said to her daughter. And it was just uh, something about stopping by a store after she got off of work. And that was it. She said, What would I have given? To have one more word with her. What would I have given to be able to say something to her one last time? And she flat out said, I would have, I would give anything to do that. And it stuck with me for for years. And I think about that moment and I think about what it must feel like for a woman in her position who is where Nancy comes into play. Nancy is a woman who has lost somebody unfairly and unjustly, not because of anyone else. In this case, it's due to an illness. And Her inclusion was not necessarily just to show another side of death, but to show the importance of how sometimes grief doesn't let go, that it can grow unchecked if you're not careful. It can grow into a fire. It can burn everything down around you. And people like that, and people when they get into that point of their lives when grief is all they know, it becomes like quicksand. It becomes something that'll pull them down. And they, unless a miracle happens, frankly, and they are able to pull themselves out. Most likely, though, that doesn't happen. And they end up drowning. And I wanted to show Nancy as the fact that she was drowning, but that she was drowning around people who would be there to help her in case that she did, in case that that was became all she knew. And what I loved about her relationship with Hugo is how fraught it is at the beginning, but that when it comes down to it, Hugo is who he is, and he is empathetic, he is caring, he is, he has one of the biggest hearts in the world that can break just as easily as the next person's. But he knows how important the work he does is, and why it's important for Nancy to be able to find peace through his help, but also doing a lot of the work herself. It will not ring true for everyone, her character, because most people, thankfully, will never go through what she did. But I think that her, including her And her character arc was not only necessary, but it's important because it's one of those things, again, that we don't really talk about the death of, in this case, a child. And I wanted to be able to give people that might be in her position a voice while also making it feel authentic. But again, recognizing that no two people experience this sort of grief the same way and that what might be true for one won't be true for another. But I've seen people lost in grief. I've seen what it does. I know what it does because I've been there. So I needed to have a character like Nancy to show that it is possible to find color and life again. You may not ever be cured. You may not ever be fixed, but as so long as you're stepping in the right direction, you can keep on doing it, man. You can keep on going, even if it becomes hard. And look to the people around you. I'm not going to lie and say that it's something that you can fix very easily on your own. For me, it took countless hours of therapy. Yeah, We need to have these conversations and talk about these things because they're important. The more we shine a light on this stuff, the, the better off we'll all be.
0: It's so true. And I think what I love about this book also is that there are so many different kinds of death and reactions to it and different kinds mm-hmm. of grief. And, and to your point, it just shows that nobody's experience is the same. Nobody's outcome is the same. And I, I think that's so true and needed and a conversation that we don't have very often that would help so many people if we could could talk about it. I think for people who are going through grief and then people who haven't experienced it in the same way that to help them learn how to talk to the grieving people a little bit easier. Yeah. So
1: one of the things that I've noticed, and I thought this might happen, but I wasn't expecting it to the level that it has, is since this book has come out, I've received a bunch of emails from readers with their own stories of grief and the things that they lost. And some of it is big grief. Some of it is little grief. Some of it is big death or little death. But almost every person I say has mentioned their own grief in one form or another. Some are much more explicit about it, telling me these these long stories about the loss of their loved ones. Some are very, keep it close to the chest and say, this person is somebody who I lost and this is what the book reminded me of. But I think that when we read something that touches us, or reminds us that it's okay, again, not to be okay, that we kind of want to reach out and continue to focus on that feeling and what it might mean. So I heard from a lot of people and I've read a lot of stories about people in in their stages of grief. And it's been hard, but it's also been humbling that people feel like that they can share these deeply personal things with me because of a book I wrote.
0: I think that's the best sign of a fantastic book is that people feel comfortable <laughs> to do that. Truly. I mean yeah, that's it, like the ultimate.
1: Yeah, I always preface it by saying that I'm not qualified to give advice or anything like that in in response, but I always, always will respond to any email I get about stuff like this because, you know, sometimes the best thing that can happen is just acknowledgement that you were heard and that might be the only thing that you need at that moment.
0: Yeah, very true. I have two more questions for you. Yeah. One is, what can we expect from TJ Clue next? Mm -hmm.
1: Boy, so next year is going to be the conclusion to my young adult trilogy. The first book was "The Extraordinaries. Second book that came out this summer was "Flashfire," mm-hmm. and the third book is "Heatwave." It was just announced, and it is the concluding chapter that follows Nick and Seth and Jazz and Gibby as they deal with the fallout of the of the second book and what that might mean for them as friends in their future. I'm very excited about this book. Yeah, I'm very that's excited great. for it to, yeah. to end after that comes the third and final book in my unofficial kindness trilogy, unofficial because they're not related. It started with the house in the Cerulean Sea. It went on into under the whispering door, and it'll end in this third and final book that uh, house in the Cerulean Sea asked what it took to be kind to others. Under the Whispering Door was about being kind to yourself. This last book, which is a queer retelling of Carlo Collodi's Pinocchio, is about if it's possible to show kindness to people who don't deserve it, or even actively might have harmed others. And do they deserve the the same kind of kindness that others are given? And it is a big, huge adventure about an inventor named Victor and his two... Robotic best friends who discover an android in a garbage pile and try to fix him back up. And I am so, so excited about this book. It's wild. It's crazy. And it has the best and most adorable sidekick, a Roomba vacuum with the heart of a golden retriever. And his name is Rambo. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> if you like Chauncey and, and if you like Apollo in, in Under the yes. Whispering Door, wait until you meet Rambo. He is going to blow your freaking mind.
0: <laughs> that is absolutely the kind of book that you should tackle next. And I cannot wait to read it. That sounds like the perfect wrap oh, up to this. It, to it, it is.
1: It is. So, it is so weird. Like, But the what I love is The House in Sterling Sea was on the island, and then I went even smaller with Under the Whispering Door in a tea shop. But this last book is big and huge, and there's a quest and travel and all these big things happening, but it's still very, very queer. So a lot to look forward to.
0: That's fantastic. My smile is so big. I can't. I'm so thrilled for that one. Now, the last question I have for you is, it's just reflective. What would you tell your young self? Take a minute. Take it all in. (laughs) Do you ever do
1: that? So I do. And- I will never, ever take what I do for granted. Look, let's face it. I'm one of those lucky few who gets to say, I love my job more than anything in the world. And I get to do what I love every single day. Writing has not only been a huge part of my life, but it has saved me more times that I could count. Books have saved me more times that I could count. And if I could tell nine, 10 year old me who carried around a notebook, filling it with ideas, if I could tell 13, 14-year-old me who had two teachers who said that you were going to be a big writer one day and that they couldn't wait to see your name on a book in a bookstore. And then the very next year, I had a teacher, an English teacher who told me that I should give up because I was a terrible writer. If I could tell 18-year-old me who was broke and and unsure of of where your next meal was gonna come from, if I could tell 19-year-old me that it was okay that your parents didn't like you, anymore because of your queerness and everything like that. If I could tell all those versions of me that one day I would get to tell queer stories that I never got to see and be paid to do it, and that <laughs> some people seem to like them, <laughs> yeah. then I wouldn't have believed you. I, look, I am so grateful. Even if one of my books was never, ever get onto a bestseller list again, I am so grateful to be where I'm at. How many people get to say that they do what I do? Every day I take stock in my life, what I've done, how hard I've worked. But knowing that I did not go through this alone, I have had the backing of a tremendous publisher in tour and all the people who work there that have worked together to, to put these books out. I'm very lucky. And even if I were never able to write another book, at least I will have gotten to this moment. And at least I will have gotten to say, I had this chance and this opportunity and that I ran with it.
0: We are so grateful for you writing these books. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you so much. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Mm-hmm. And thank you for reminding
0: me. I'd love to sit and chat with you anytime. <laughs>
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> and congratulations again on Under the Whispering Door being the Barnes and Noble speculative fiction Pick. Thank you.
1: And thank you to to Barnes and Noble and all the booksellers who have championed this book. You guys are just the best. I know I used to work for Barnes and Noble way back in the day as a bookseller. So I know how sometimes it it can be a hard work, but thank you for doing what you've done and picking this book. It's this book, especially it's, it's such a tremendous honor. So thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you so much. Congratulations again, all the best to you. I cannot wait for the next books to come out. They will be on my list for sure. And thank you.
2: Thank you so much. Now it is time for your TBR top off and welcome to the segment this week. My name is James. And I'm Margie. And we are so excited about our speculative book of the year, TJ Klune, Under the Whispering Door. I read it this summer and Uh I... I
1: read it it. before James read it. She (laughs) did.
2: And we both absolutely loved it. I'm actually reading it again right now. Oh, it's wonderful. It's so good. And I cannot wait. I've put this in so many people's hands and just said, please read this. I love it so much. His previous book, uh, House on the Cerulean Sea, was our speculative pick back in January. And that book is also so good. You guys, you got to read it. So we are here to add three books to your to-be-read list, the TBR top-off this week, based on this new book from TJ Klune, which is our speculative pick of the year, and I can't even tell you how excited we are. All right, so we got three to go. Margie, why don't you take it away? Absolutely.
3: It was really, really difficult coming up with books that I would recommend with TJ Klune. He is a very singular author and storyteller. So what I did was I kind of tried to find some stuff that made me feel the same way as experiencing his books made me feel. So the first one that I want to talk about is called Once Upon a River. It's by Diane Sutterfield. So way back in the day, when I first started at Barnes & Noble in like nineteen
2: Way back. Yeah, like
3: really long time ago. <laughs> Diane Sutterfield was the selection for the very first Barnes & Noble Recommends, which is a program that doesn't actually happen anymore because we recommend a lot of it.
2: All the time. We're doing it right now.
3: <laughs> but they focused on her book, Thirteenth Tale, which is also fantastic, by the way. But Once Upon a River has a very special feeling to it. So on a dark midwinter's night in an ancient inn on the River Thames, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, and that's kind of how the whole book feels. It is absolutely a fairy tale, folk tale for grown-ups. So on this dark and stormy night in an inn... um. Everybody's sitting around telling stories, and this grievously, this grievously injured gentleman comes in holding the body of a little girl. Mm. Looks like she's dead. So they call the midwife, and they take her to the ice house. And the midwife can't do anything for her. So, you know, she's just sad. And then all of a sudden, the girl moves and starts breathing and comes back to life. So, the child is mute. And cannot say anything about where she's from or what happened to her. And she comes to represent something to all of the people that live up and down the river. So there's a mother who is convinced that this is the young girl that was kidnapped from her two years ago. There is a farming family that is completely surprised by the discovery that their son had a secret affair. And they have a granddaughter that they've never met. And there is the pastor's housekeeper who kind of sees in this girl the return of a younger sister who she was once unable to protect. And there's also the overlying question of maybe this is the long-lost daughter of the phantom ferryman who patrols the river, saving those who are in peril before their time and taking those whose time has come. So this absolutely envelopes you. And by the way, the ending is absolutely satisfying. If you're like me, you're going to be reading it thinking to yourself, what's she going to do at the end of this? (laughs) But it's incredibly satisfying. It gives you that sense of just falling into a story and being completely subsumed by it and just wanting to know what happens while seeing all this beauty in an old-fashioned fairy tale. Mm. And so that's Once Upon a River by Diane Sutterfield.
2: All right, I'm adding that. That's on my list.
3: So the next one I want to talk about could not be more different from Ones Upon a River. It is called All Systems Read by Martha Wells. I really would like to talk about the entire Murderbot series. This is called The Murderbot Diaries. It is the first entry, and it is just amazing. I read all of these in the course of like two days. So they're short little novellas. They are about an android or... I would really say a construct. So it's mostly robotic, but also has human elements. So there's human tissue, especially in the brain area. So like anything that is human biology that would be more helpful than a robot biology is incorporated into this construct. It is made for security. It's called the sec unit. And it basically is sent to far-off worlds where people have made mining claims or things like that. And it protects them. It calls itself Murderbot. It is the name it has given itself. Nobody else knows it. Hmm. And the reason that it can name itself is it has destroyed its control module. So it can't be forced to do anything it doesn't want to do. But it's still working as a SEC unit and spending all its off time watching human television programs, which I think is amazing, and just kind of deals with the silliness of humanity while trying to figure out what it is in in and of itself. But things kind of take a weird turn when it starts working for a group of people that actually treat it as a human, or as, I should say, as a person, as a being that's worth consideration, which it has never come across before. Usually people think of it as completely scary and terrifying and, you know, ignore it or just get saved by it because it saves everybody's lives. But once it's faced with dealing with being a person, something strange starts happening because now it has to be reliant on self-determination instead of being forced to do things through a module. So it's hilarious. Murderbot is sarcastic and fun these books are they really are fast-paced adventure stories but they have all of this philosophical backdrop of what it means to be a person and how often we treat people based on our perceptions of who they are Mm. so the reason I chose this one is it gives you that feeling of um affection for the characters which doesn't seem like you would have that for something that's a murder bot but it's real (laughs) so uh please also check out all systems read by martha wells
2: i love that because see that's that's what i think makes us booksellers is that you picked up on those themes that are so strong in under the whispering door and you found that in a book that is a completely different plot it's not like you pulled the same one I love that. I love that.
3: Yeah, don't be afraid of science fiction,
2: everyone. <laughs> it can be your friend. You get a
0: lot from
2: it. Well, I am going to diverge a little bit about that. So the theme that I'm really picking up on from T.J. Klune's book is the idea of chosen family. And it's a theme that he really brought to bear in his book, House on the Cerulean Sea, and then, of course, in his uh, new one that we're talking about. Um, so another book that... Picks up on that theme is, guess what? Nonfiction pick. Nice. Surprise, surprise. Nonfiction November. So hopefully you're reading some nonfiction this month. But I think one of my favorite nonfiction memoirs is by Josh Kilmer Purcell, and it's called I Am Not Myself These Days. And you've read this, didn't you, Margie? I have read it. Yes. It's amazing. It's amazing, right? So he is newly in New York. He has a smashing career at an advertising agency, but he also has a double life as a drag queen and a nightclub beauty pageant, um, and has a wild life in New York. But he through this learns who he is and his and and what is what does he really want out of life? And also the value of self-respect for the decisions that he's making um, and how to find his true self and also to be kind to himself. And in the end, finds his chosen family. Now, Josh Kilmer Purcell, you may know, he's kind of become famous. Beyond this book, with his company with his husband from upstate New York, they're called the Beekman Boys, the Fabulous Fabulous Beekman Boys. Yes. They have some cookbooks. They have lots of soaps and candles and things like that. And uh, I have their soap in my bathroom. (laughs) And I didn't really put together that this was the same guy that wrote this book for a while. So, But it is a a fun read. It's a lot of debauchery on the front end and then just some great redemption on the back end for a nonfiction book. So that is I Am Not Myself These Days by Josh Kilmer Purcell. All right. Well, we come to you from our Barnes & Noble here in Northville, Michigan. We are happy that you joined us today. Stop into your local Barnes & Noble and get a recommendation from one of our many booksellers who are excited to talk to you. My name is James. You can follow me on Instagram at jamesreadingbooks.
3: And I'm Margie. You can follow me at margiebookbrain. And congratulations, TJ Klune.
2: Congratulations. We adore you. And we are so excited for people to read your new book. Have a great week, everybody.
3: Happy reading.
1: Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.